Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're continuing our investigation into H.P. Lovecraft's classic weird tale, The Whisperer in Darkness. Before we get into all that good darkness, however, what is going on? Well, we're approaching the end of November, so it won't be long before our blasphemous tomes, our fanzine for all our Patreon backers, will be winging its ways through the darkness to your doorstep. On thin membranous wings. Indeed. I thought we were going to stuff them in brain cylinders this year. Oh. Well, they've got to carry them somehow. The postage on brain cylinders is murder, particularly once you start getting outside the space-time continuum. Yep, those listeners out there who back us on Patreon, if you back us by the end of November, not only will you get the printed, on paper, fanzine, you'll also get a Christmas card, signed by Jackson himself. Or at least by the three of us. Shh, you're taking the magic away! (laughs) (laughs) You can still get it if you're with us by the end of the year, just obviously you will have missed the cut-off for the Christmas post, so no card, but you'll still get the fanzine. And what can people expect to find in this fanzine, Paul? Well, they can expect to find a new scenario by myself, which I've changed the title. I was writing it over the last few weeks and a a, a different title occurred to me. So it's entitled, Of This Men Shall Know Nothing. Oh, I quite like the original one. It's set in uh, World War II. Uh, I did a poll with all the backers and World War II was a popular period to have a scenario set in. And yes, you're part of Operation Varsity in a rather flimsy but large glider flying over the German border into enemy territory at the end of World War II. Curiously, your glider doesn't so much land, more kind of crash. As player characters, you will survive. You may be scratched up a bit, but you will survive. But, you know... The rest of it remains a mystery as to what you will find. It'd be a very short scenario if they didn't survive the crash, wouldn't it? It would. It would. That might be a really fun fake-out for a convention scenario. Okay, you're all in this glider. It's spinning out of control. It crashes on the ground. You're dead. Right, okay. Anyone else got a game to play? Next scenario. Funnily enough, that's pretty much how my dissociation scenario opens in Fierce Sharp Little Needles. That has very much been, right, it just the plane's been ripped apart midair. You're falling about 10,000 feet. It all goes black. Thank you for playing. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And Scott, you've been whispering in the darkness yourself, I believe, talking to a guest. Yes, I've been doing yet another interview. I recently spoke to Matthew McLean, who is the writer, producer, and one of the stars of a podcast, which is called A Scottish Podcast. Now, why, might you ask, am I interviewing him for the good friends of Jackson Lies? Well, if you've ever listened to a Scottish podcast, you'd know, but if you haven't, I should explain that, although the name doesn't imply it, it is Lovecraftian horror. It's a sort of audio comedy drama about a washed-up radio DJ who decides to start a paranormal podcast instead and gets involved in all these Lovecraftian goings-on around Scotland. 
and it's a hell of a lot of fun. So I wanted to speak to Matthew about, well, for a start about the podcast, because I'm a big fan of it, but also about that mixture of Lovecraftian horror and comedy that we've touched upon so many times in the podcast, and the fact that horror and comedy are so closely related. And I figured that, uh, as this is kind of his bread and butter, he'd know about it. And so not only did we get into that, but also if you have any interest in how audio dramas are made or how you might get into it yourself, he actually offered an awful lot of practical advice, which was unexpected and very cool. And as we record, it's the 31st of October 2020. Mm -hmm. It's Halloween. And Scott and I are on the last day of our horror movie challenge. Mm. Now, I can honestly say every day this month I've watched a horror film. I haven't gone to the length Scott has gone to of actually writing a review. I did start a review after watching the first seven, and it's still sat on my desktop because <laughs> I never actually <laughs> finished it. At some point, hopefully by the time this goes out, I'll have posted a kind of a compilation of the, my best and worst, mm. uh, in my opinion, on theblasphemoustomes.com. So uh, that'll be there. But Scott, you've written, well, 30 reviews now yes and the 31st will be going up a little after we finish recording here because i i haven't actually finished watching the last film yet i got slightly interrupted by preparing for this recording session but it's been a bit of a slog uh, writing the reviews at times i mean that's something like thirty thousand sure. words of reviews that are up on the site now. i found it because of being at home and not really going out with the whole covid situation as it is at present then I'm home pretty much every, well, I'm home every evening, so it's not been so difficult. Mm. Whereas before, you know, on other years, even I will be going out sometimes and that, you know, if you're out for the evening, it's hard to watch a movie. Yeah. If you had to pick one, Scott, your Desert Island horror movie from October 2020, what would that be so far? Well, I'm going to reject the premise of your question and talk about three. <laughs> because... I did touch upon what I think is going to be my film of the month when we talked about this earlier, which is Tigers Are Not Afraid. And rather than rehash that, I'll talk about a different film, which is a close contender, which is a French film from 2015 called Evolution, which is a weird fucking film. It's uh, The way I described it in the review, I think, was like a fairy tale told by David Cronenberg. It's set in this remote island community with some very strange architecture where the population is made up entirely of women and adolescent boys and there is something weird going on but we're not quite sure what it is they're very obsessed with the sea despite the fact that the community is very low tech and doesn't seem to have electricity there's also a very a sort of high-tech hospital there that seems to be conducting all sorts of medical experiments on the boys and it is really weird it's got a sort of dreamy creepy atmosphere and it gets into some very dark dark places i i loved every minute of it hmm. the film i'm actually watching at the moment that i had to put on pause to <laughs> to come and do this may end up being my film of the month i don't know it may end up pipping tigers are not afraid it's in fabric which is peter strickland's new film well i say new it was two years ago and he's the writer director of barbarian sound studio which we've talked about before this film is i mean it's really strange i mean it's 
I guess, set in the 1970s, though that's never made explicit. And it's sort of about this department store, which may be run by witches and this woman who buys a cursed dress from there. But it's done in a very sort of dreamlike, tongue-in-cheek way. There's bits of real black comedy and just downright surrealism. There's a lot of eroticism. It really, more than anything else, it reminds me of Robert Aikman. It has a real Robert Aikman feel to it. Hmm. I've still got 45 minutes of it left to run, and the ending of it may completely fuck it up for me, but so far, I am in love with this film. Marvellous. Oh, yeah, it's, it's one, that's one I want to see. How about you, Paul? My highlight, I don't know if it's the best film I've seen. I mean, the two best films I think I've seen are by Moorhead and Benson, isn't it? Yes. The two writers and directors, and their films The Endless and Resolution. I really enjoyed those two films. They just fall into the horror camp for me but they're not strongly horror but great pair of movies i think the one that surprised me most is one that is a sequel to a film i talked about in one of our lockdown specials in one of our baccaroni specials that we did earlier this year when i talked about unfriended i quite enjoyed it it was fairly sort of straight kind of horror film but done in a very different kind of mode you know Mm. everything on the screen was as if you were on facebook and skype and so on and it was looking at the computer screen of a friend talking to some of the associates and friends and then there's a sequel unfriended dark web it doesn't just rehash what happened in the last one it has has a really interesting different take on it it's delivered in the same way that everything you see is as if you were looking at a computer screen but it has some great twists and about half to two-thirds of the way in i really didn't really know what was going on and where it was going and then in the sort of third part the blood starts to flow and the, and the killing starts to happen but it's not as kind of slasherific as unfriended i would say but better thought through yeah yeah i, I really enjoyed it i watched the first half of it i pushed off about oh, 45 minutes maybe a bit more into it when the sort of revelations about what was really going on were happening and we got to see some of the footage that was mm. explaining it all and yeah it, it wasn't that i didn't like it or i thought it was a bad film but i found it was more depressing than i wanted to face at the time it, it didn't really feel like a fun film it got into no you know some of the background that was going on there and it was just too sort of real world nasty and sadistic for the mood that i was in at the time and i just didn't want any part of it almost horrific scott <laughs> yeah but there's there's horror and there's there's horror there's fun horror and there's depressing horror yeah sometimes i'm absolutely in the mood for that kind of stuff i don't know maybe it was just i ha- went into it with the wrong expectations i was expecting more of a romp and then it got into this stuff and yeah I thought, it's not this isn't what i signed on to this film for i may come back to it later now that i know what it's going to show me but at the moment i really don't want to see this And now on to our main topic, The Whisperer in Darkness. Well, in our last couple of episodes, we talked a little bit about the background of the story and we got through the first few chapters and we'd left it with our protagonist, Wilmarth, exchanging letters with his new friend up in Vermont, Akeley, who is beginning to act a bit strangely. So, chapter four, 
It begins with things are getting pretty grim down at the Aitley farm. The dogs spend all night barking when the moon is dim. They, they got it completely the wrong way around. It should be when it's full. That's why it's all, <laughs> all getting weird down there. <laughs> Aitley himself is stalked by strangers when he leaves the house. The degenerating handwriting of his letters reflects his mental strain. After Aitley's telephone cable is cut, he stocks up on more dogs and ammunition for his big game rifle. No dynamite, however. No, you know, we talked about this before. The number of dogs he seems to get through is quite horrific. Well, this just gets worse as the chapter goes on, doesn't it? I yeah. Know. I mean, he's, at one point he mentions like having a dozen dogs and, and more, and he has to go, you know, oh, I'll have to go somewhere and get some more. Where is he buying all these dogs? And, you know, are the breeders not sort of saying, didn't you buy like 10 dogs the other day? What, what are you doing with them? I kept thinking of that scene from Return of the Living Dead where the zombie, this intelligent zombie, staggers over to mm. the um, radio on the ambulance that's just turned up and says, send more paramedics. <laughs> it just feels like that. Yes. Send more dogs. <laughs> dogs are man's best friend, but Akeley, he don't really give a shit. When Wilmarth suggests that Aikley alert the authorities, he receives a strange telegram in response. Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry Aikley. Mm. Always mm. trust a guy who can spell his own name correctly. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because we should note, this telegram is phrased slightly differently, but not only that, Aikley is spelt the name incorrectly. He's missed out the second E mm. between the L and the Y of Aikley. A clue, perhaps? If we were running this as a game, would we expect players to pick up on a subtle clue like that? <laughs> I've talked about in a previous episode how sometimes as a player I feel bombarded with information in investigative games and you've got all these handouts and people to keep track of and so on. And if you've got a little bit of information like this, which is potentially critical, do we expect the players just to spot that? Do we give them a role to give them a chance to do so? I'd put it in, but I wouldn't expect them to find it. Likewise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like the usual suspects. All the clues are there, but it's not until the penny drops and you look around and you see all the clues stacking up. So I think if you were to give this telegram out to your players as a handout on paper and they read it they might pick up on a clear spelt differently they might not and as a gm i wouldn't really mind because it's not i don't think it's something that's going to cause a problem whether they pick up on it or not it's just there if they see it yeah but wilmoth does notice that it's spelled wrong he still responds, however, and then Akeley sends him a handwritten note warning that he was not the one who sent the telegram. Wilma then contacts the telegraph office at Bellows Falls, and the clerk talks to him and describes the sender as having a curiously thick, droning voice. Hmm, we've heard that before. Sounds like me most mornings, to be fair. <laughs> Meanwhile, Akeley is regularly having to replace his dogs. The RSPCA are going to love this guy. Which are being killed by nocturnal prowlers, both human and otherwise. He talks about leaving Vermont and is going to live with his son in California, but is reluctant to leave his home. 
Evidently, he has as much self-preservation instinct as Wilmarth does. Well, this is something that I always struggle with a bit sometimes when talking to horror fans. So let's move away from this just briefly and talk about, say, your classic haunted house film. You've got a family that moves into a new house and weird things start happening. The number of horror fans or people who watch horror films I've spoken to who immediately say, well, I'd move out of the house immediately and, and abandon it. Really? Would people really do that? Would they uproot? I mean, for a start, a lot of people financially might not be able to afford to do so. It's a huge upheaval. And where it's something like this, where it's his family home, it's where he's lived all his life. Just casually walking away from it all is not something that most sane people would really do, is it? No, I think I think they'd better think it through a bit first. I mean, get any good insurance policy on the house, then burn it to the ground, claim the money and buy somewhere new and just live in a motel for the period in between. <laughs> that seems a much more sensible and realistic thing to do. Yeah, and he's got all his shit here, hasn't he? He's got all his books and his artefacts, which he very much uh, values, mm. and he doesn't want to give those up. And you know, people's homes are important to them. So like you say, Scott, it's, it's both a financial and an emotional commitment, yeah. I think, in having the house. And so if you think about yourself right now, listener, sat in your own home, perhaps, if some bad things happen. I mean, I think if there's a direct and definite threat, mm. that's different. But if it's just a bit spooky and there are some weird things happening. I lived in a house that we were getting broken into and went to bed with a like well a knife under the bed and things like that but it's like mm. you know i didn't like leave home but then it wasn't supernatural i guess but i don't know if i'd have felt differently about that yeah i mean i've lived in a couple of houses where weird things have happened and well they almost certainly had perfectly rational explanations they fitted a lot of the tropes of haunted house stories and if i were inclined to believe in ghosts i could very easily have seen them as being haunted and it never occurred to me to leave either of them because, well, A, I could rationalise what was going on as it not being a haunted house. And B, I couldn't really afford the time and money and hassle of doing so. A shaky handwritten letter from Akeley tells how the creatures are becoming bolder. Standing on the roof of his house in the night, he has had to replace so many slaughtered dogs that he worries that the kennel owners will think him mad. <laughs> Now, I do notice a few times in this story how many times he refers to insanity and madness. Mm. Thinking about in Call of Cthulhu, how many sanity roles there would have been. And Lovecraft is kind of hinting at these, I think, you know, because the narrator and, and Akeley, they both kind of refer to their own sanity quite a few times, which I found interesting. Yeah, and Akeley in particular, if we're talking about how Wilmarth is perceiving what's going on with Akeley, quite often he does worry that Akeley is losing his mind and mm. whether this is some kind of trauma that he's undergoing because of all the weird shit that's going on around him or whether this is some underlying psychosis. He is putting quite a lot of stock in the veracity of what Akeley is relating to him. But going back to this whole idea of the kennel odour and the slaughtered dogs, it strikes me that what Akeley's doing here is a very sort of player character action. Just buy more dogs, more dogs, more dogs. And 
he is saying that he's worried that the kennel owners might think him mad. But in a game like this, where you have these sort of transactions or encounters with minor NPCs, the kind of NPCs like the kennel owner, where you don't even necessarily give them names, do you ever worry about or play up how they react to or think of the player characters or is this just the kind of stuff that isn't important to the game so you just brush aside i think it depends on how it's handled because i've had so many situations before where maybe gms are quite versus the player quite antagonistic Mm. will use it as a stick to beat the players with and that can become very unfun very very quickly So, if anything, I'd probably go towards the other end of the spectrum, and if it's appropriate to the moment, and if it's something that I think works, maybe have it as some comic relief, perhaps, but I certainly wouldn't suddenly have you be used as a method to penalise players with, because I think that is a very unfun thing to do. Mm. I certainly know players, I've played with a lot of people, who as soon as they have an NPC interaction like this, something is going to go south that if you had the kennel owner or just you know a throwaway scene where the kennel owner says well what are you doing with all these dogs it would end up with the kennel being on fire and the the kennel owner's body being dragged off to a shallow grave in the woods i think i know who you mean when you're saying (laughs) i have a player that will do this (laughs) so yeah i'm always a bit wary of stuff like this (laughs) the next day another note arrives Akeley is even more shaken as the creatures have started speaking to him in the night, making strange threats. They don't mean to let me get to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive. Not only to Yogoth, but beyond that, away outside the galaxy and possibly beyond the last curved rim of space. I told them I wouldn't go where they wish, or in the terrible way they proposed to take me, but I'm afraid it will be no use. When the next letter from Akeley arrives, the writing is scrawled, but the tone is fatalistic. The creatures have made contact via a typewritten letter and told Akeley exactly what their plans for him are. Akeley urges Wilmarth to smash the wax cylinder. Now, this is a direct approach from the monsters at this stage and they haven't started speaking to him in person yet but they are sending him clear notes and as we'll discover sooner or later they are going to start just plain talking to him if this were a game do you think that would add to the horror or subtract from it i'm always a bit worried personally about having monsters that you know, engage in conversation with player characters. Not that I want them to be dumb brutes or anything like that, but I always feel like having them being more enigmatic is more frightening than something you can just plain talk to. But, I mean, here it seems to work. It seems to build up the fear. I know. Is this something that either of you have any thoughts on? Depends on the monster. I mean, each one has their own different flavour and also within the context of the story. There are certain instances where I can think of, for instance, deep ones work better as this stalking monster in the dark coming at you with a trident or claws, whereas in other ones, if you're trying to make them more sympathetic, then having communication with them would be essential to build that particular type of atmosphere. So, yeah, I mean, it all depends on the context for me. But that's the point, I guess, that you talk about 
speaking to them, making them more sympathetic here. And in the case of the Migo and this, I mean, do we want them to be more sympathetic? I don't know if it makes, does it make them more sympathetic? Well, that's, I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, no, if you're trying to achieve that end with them, that's what I mean. So you're saying here that Akeley receives a typewritten letter. Is that right? Because I'd kind of glossed over that. Yes, yes. Akeley receives a typewritten note from the Migo. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly communicating with them, isn't he? He's hearing them talking to him. Well, this is before he's actually heard them talking. This is his first sort of communication through words with them rather than just being this sort of alien, sinister presence. Yeah, and it makes sense that they would write to him, you know, with what we learn later. Mm. Yeah, certainly they do typewrite letters to people. I mean, and also they've got human agents that might have carried this out for them on their behalf. But I guess the point is, if this were a game, is that something you'd do yourself in the expectation that it would make the game more frightening? Or would you worry that as soon as you do that, there's that... I don't know, a sort of deflation of uncertainty on the part of the players where it's sort of, oh yeah, okay, we can talk to these things. Uh, yeah, if we can talk to them, maybe we can find out exactly what they're up to. Okay, well, they're not a sinister unknown presence anymore. Yeah, let's let's just have a chat. I think part of that comes down to whether it's categorical proof that they know that note was written by the Migo, because I would probably interject some degree of uncertainty saying well is it the Migo that have sat there with a typewriter is it their human agents obviously does that mean then we can trust what's said on there if we don't now we don't see the Migo postman turn up at the door and hand it to us directly (laughs) there's got to be some degree of ambiguity and some degree of uncertainty that lends to that kind of paranoia and mistrust but there isn't later he's absolutely certain that the Migo are actually speaking to him later on yeah, but that's mm. later. But I mean, at this point, with just a typewritten letter, do you believe that it's been written by some crustacean from space? Oh, sure. But I'm talking in general terms <laughs> in the game. Insert your own answer here. Akeley <laughs> also reveals that he has found the body of one of the creatures, apparently killed by his dogs. Hey, you know, it takes about 50 dogs to kill Amigo. He dragged the remains to his barn to examine them, but they evaporated within hours. That's so like the Invaders, the uh, 1960s series. <laughs> hey, I've got proof yeah. of alien life! And then it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, reading it, it's not apparent to me that the dogs killed it. It's He says um, the dogs had got it by the kennel, but he's been shooting out of his window, oh, yeah. you know, night by night. We've kind of glossed over a little mm. bit. Every night, he's been assailed by bullet fire from the Migos human agents, several of them, and he's talked about bullets like firing through the through the windows so he could have been shot you know Akeley could have been shot could have been hit by mm. these bullets and also the Mega are out there there's quite a lot of them you know he's shooting and he says about shooting over the heads of his dogs but he does accidentally hit at least one of his dogs maybe we come to that later so I'm kind of wondering did he shoot this Mego that he finds you know the implication is he finds it by the dog's kennel because the dog's like chowing down on mm. it like it's found a bone but mmm tasty bone you know so I think that's quite possible too if he's been shooting that much, the law of averages says that he's got a roll of one at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, quite possibly, the dogs did get him because, after all, it was just a single mm, dog that yeah. took down Wilbur Wakeley. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, we come back to the power of dogs, mm. definitely. Yes, like any good investigator, he takes some photos, but when they're developed, the only things that you can see are just the barn they were in and nothing else. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it and felt it. And they all have footprints. It was surely made of matter, but what kind of matter? The shape can't be described. It was a great crab 
with a lot of pyramided fleshy rings on knots of thick ropey stuff covered with feelers where a man's head should be. That green sticky stuff is its blood or juice. Green sticky stuff. Mm. Mm. Akeley suspects that one of his barrages of gunfire killed Walter Brown, the human agent who has not been seen since. In desperation, Akeley muses about using poison gas to kill the creatures. He has already procured the chemicals he needs, as well as masks for himself and the <laughs> yeah, dogs. <no>. In <laughs> Yeah, uh, when I listened to the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast, they made a point about yeah. this. Gas masks for dogs. I mean, they may well have been a thing during the war. I don't know. Mm. Um, I can quite well believe they may have had them. But anyway, if, if all that fails, he hopes to either get the sheriff or the state police to spend a night at the farm and see what's going on. OK, so going back to the idea of this being a Call of Cthulhu game, were the keepers running this, mm. how do we deal with Akeley as a player character hatching either of these two plans, gas them all and try to keep the dog safe in the process, or alternatively, we call the police. I wouldn't have him as a PC. I'd have him as the NPC, and you're playing the cops that are going on this crazy mission to go, <laughs> go and spend yeah. the night at the house. Yeah, liking the sound of that. You've got this crazy old man who's going out there doing effectively chemical warfare on the local environment. Not to mention the abuse that they've probably been hurled at by the local kennel saying, this guy's killing all the dogs, and then you turn up and he's going to gas them all. <laughs> yeah, I think you would be like animal welfare or environmental officers going in, because he's using like toxic chemicals that he's been buying from the local store, and they've alerted the authorities perhaps because this guy's buying them in large quantities. Yeah, and all this animal abuse as well. It's, you know, I can well believe that Akeley... You know, there are no monsters <laughs> yeah. out there. Akeley is just firing at federal agents that have come to, like, arrest him. Or well, people from the local sanatorium have come to take him away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially, so they're just going to gloss over the fact that he's killed Walter Brown, probably dumped the body in a shallow <laughs> grave, never to be seen again. And yeah. there's all this mounting evidence at his place. I mean, it's really incriminating. <laughs> The true story remains to be written. <laughs> but assuming we do take it all at face value, if we were mm. running a game and the player characters under the siege situation from the Migo did come up with this plan of, we'll make a bunch of poison gas and create some gas masks for ourselves and our dogs, how would you actually handle that in the game? Because it does strike me as being the kind of plan that a lot of players i've played with will come up with i think that's a great setup for a self-inflicted tpk personally <laughs> yeah. yeah i think you run with it and you give them a chance of it working you don't like just say no that won't work you kind of go with what your players choose to do and just introduce some elements of random risk with dice and so on and, and skill rolls because so you don't want to fly in the face of what the players no. the plan that the players come up with i think just highlight the fact repeatedly. And so we're looking mm. at chemistry roles for creating the poison gas in the first place, and then what mechanical repair roles perhaps for fashioning gas masks for the dogs, and hoping that they don't mm. screw either of those up, because otherwise there's going to be an awful lot of dead dogs around. <laughs> well, there already are a lot of well, dead dogs. Yeah. But this whole thing of him calling the police to try to deal with the whole situation is something we've touched upon many times in the podcast, but yeah, anyway, but this idea of, okay, I'm in this bad situation, let's call up the local authorities to sort it out. 
So would you have any expectation if this were a game that the police would take any of this even remotely seriously? If so, what might happen? Dial 0800 Mego agent. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they could send the sheriff up there and he could be working for the Mego because they've got lots of human agents or, you know, he's going to look around as he find the body of Walter Brown Mm. Then we've got a murder case on on his hands. You know, does he believe that there are weird alien monsters attacking the place at night? You know, there's a lot of unknowns there. Suddenly turning the whisper in darkness into a courtroom drama as he tries to explain his <laughs> innocence while he's on the stand. That could actually be quite a cool spin on this. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Wilmoth writes back to Akeley by registered post, urging him to flee the farm and promising to meet up with him elsewhere. And with that... We end the chapter. And on to chapter five. Wilmarth receives another letter from Akeley, this one typewritten though. It is a much calmer, more reassuring note. The entire thing implies a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. This largely relieves Wilmarth's anxiety, although he admits to a substratum of uneasiness (laughs) that would be a great title for something wouldn't it a substratum of uneasiness as i said before this guy is the most gullible investigator that you could possibly fear to have in a group (laughs) (laughs) now in the letter akeley describes his earlier concerns as silly now that he has entered into communication with the entities, the previous night, the Migo sent a human emissary who helped Akeley understand the misconceptions under which he has been operating. Yeah, so the Migo sends someone to talk to him and, and show him the light, show him the way, show him how he's been wrong in everything I thought up to now I've been mistaken about. Yeah, have this flavour, aid. <laughs> It strikes me that we're, what, about halfway, two-thirds of the way through the story at this stage, and that almost all of it takes the form of these letters going backwards and forwards between Akeley and Wilmarth. Again, thinking of this in Call of Cthulhu terms, have we ever been in a game, or could we envision a game which relies this much on correspondence and the interactions of two characters or groups of characters who arguably never even meet. Well, isn't that pretty much the whole basis of how the uh, De Profundis RPG is mm. supposed to work? Mm. Yeah, it's very much like that, yeah, yeah. But I don't think it's something... I mean, you would have perhaps letters and correspondence in a game as handouts, but I don't really see a game being run in this manner. No, you'd pretty much have the GM with his initial handout, or his or her handout, that you give to the players... You're then saying, right, players, compose a response. That'll then take a few minutes, they'll write it out. Then the GM's going to read it and go, oh, that sounds interesting. Ponder, what can I possibly reply with? Then they'll bang out their own on their word processor and then print that out and then hand it across. (laughs) I I could not think of a slower, more dull game to be in uh, at a convention or at an in-person session. It just does not work. Yeah, but you don't necessarily have to sit there and write the letters. You could summarise what you're putting in the letter that you're sending back. But it's just the fact that it's happening at this physical distance 
I can't think of too many groups I've played with where their reaction as soon as they get the merest hint of something weird going on here wouldn't be immediately, okay, well, let's jump in a car and drive up there and see all this in person. All this sort of build up in the exchange for letters. I can't really see that ever happening in a game, can you? No, not really. No. Hang on a minute. We're all agreed on a point. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's scary in itself. This agent explains that the Migo never had any hostile intent towards Akeley. They forgive him for his violent actions and hope that they can work together to thwart their enemies and make the world a better place for all of humanity. <laughs> no, they don't quite go that far, but you know, they want to. They they just they just they just like they're just like they're us. Just really. misunderstood. They're just yeah. friendly. Yeah, yeah. Inside, you know, inside that hard exterior. <laughs> That hard, fungoid, slightly spongy in places, exterior covered with feelers and pincers and funny smells. Indeed. But they have some interesting things to share with us. He writes, There is a whole secret cult of evil men. A man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Haster and the yellow sign. Devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the outer ones are directed. Yeah, now this was one of the things that I think when I first read it, I kind of glossed Mm. over a bit because there's a lot of repetition in this story, you know, in these letters back and forth, kind of going over the same ground. And we've had reference to Nalathotep and I think also Haster earlier. Yeah, and the yellow sign, yeah. Um, But I hadn't really picked up that Haster and the Yellow Sign, the people that are in that cult that are referred to here, are actually against the Migo. Yeah. So it's another faction. They're a faction. Now, if we take it, as as I think we do, that this typewritten letter isn't from Akeley, that it is penned or typewritten by the Migo or agents of the Migo, then surely they are telling us about this cult otherwise otherwise why are they bothering to mention this yes we know there is this other cult out there that that we have to to worry about but they're opposed to the migo so you know is the enemy of our enemy our friend it's very very strange isn't it because Mm. considering that the migo or their agents have written this note to wilmarth pretending to be akeley as a way of misdirecting him or manipulating him for a start can we actually believe anything in it and if this is a nugget of truth if they really are in opposition with the forces of Haster and the yellow sign why would they then just throw that randomly into a letter that they're sending to someone that they don't necessarily think they can trust the only rationale for that I can think, if if we take it that the Haster and the Yellow Sign cult aren't real, the only rationale I can think of is to sort of say, there are other things out there that you need to worry about, so come and see us and we'll set your mind at ease and we'll set you straight because there are other enemies out there that want to do us harm, you know, us and you. It's kind of sowing fear yeah. to Wilmarth to try and get him on side, I think. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. But on the other hand, we know from At the Mountains of Madness that the Migo are in conflict with other Mythos forces because we hear about how they went into battle against the Elder Things at some stage. And so, Mm. you know, they've obviously got enemies out there. Mm. 
Yeah, thinking of how this is developed in the game world, if I remember right, there is, or well, there's been promoted a link between Shubnigarath and Hasta, and that the Migo have been almost put in that Shubnigarath camp as that that's their, the god that they worship. So it's weird then that they would find themselves here advocating attacking what should be, in, in game terms, an ally, that it seems like the Brotherhood of the Yellow Sign would be someone that they would be on a maybe a cordial relationship with, that they wouldn't see any animosity mm. there. So I wonder where that divergence from this statement here happened, if, mm. there were, if we're taking this as being canonical and not some kind of, some kind of lie. So Akeley reassures Wilmarth that the Outer Ones, that's his phrase for them, or the phrase in the letter, only want peace and non-molestation and an increasing intellectual rapport. They have chosen Akeley as a new emissary, and he hopes one day that they will help him journey outside. I do notice in, in this letter as well, there's, there's the quote that the Amigo could have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. Mm. It's like, you know, we don't want everybody to know about us, but, you know, a few of your key people could know about us. But also in the letter, Akeley puts himself forward or they put him forward as their primary interpreter on Earth. Now, these could be framed again as the ravings of somebody who is suffering from severe mental illness thinking you know there's plenty of people in psychiatric wards who think they're jesus moses muhammad and, and so on so if he is fake this letter that he would be putting himself forward as you know <laughs> yeah. kind of god's representative on earth you know that seems entirely credible to me as well so i'd be very skeptical <laughs> about that letter you know because it may be it may be faked by the amigo or written by the amigo but also on another level if I was receiving this in a game, I'd be wondering, well, is this the ravings of uh, of Akeley? If you receive a letter that you think is too good to be true, it is almost certainly spam. <laughs> yeah, a prince from Yoggoth sent this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His money's tied up in a mining operation, but if you just sort of help him with a little investment, yeah, <laughs> eternal life can be yours. <laughs> Please send your brain in a canister to this address. Yeah. <laughs> but also, let's say for argument's sake that they did say these things to Akeley, then maybe this is just their way of bullshitting him and trying to get him on side by making him great promises. Mm. And it does sort of raise yeah. the possibility that for all their advanced technology and their strange powers, that the Migo aren't necessarily very good liars, that they aren't very good at spinning stories. And I think that's actually quite an interesting limitation to place upon them that you do have these beings with all these amazing abilities and so on but their one weakness is they just underestimate people's ability to see bullshit their spelling's pretty bad as well <laughs> well yes there is that i mean they seem to be able to spell nutritive differentiate <laughs> cormophytic uh, and so on but you know not yes. akely <laughs> but that could be quite an interesting thing to throw in that you have certainly people who aren't very good at lying just because they're neurology. Mm. And it seems fair to think of an alien race like this that, for all its vast cosmic intelligence, just doesn't really think in the same way as us and isn't perhaps very good at deceit for that reason and just makes attempts at it every now and then because it's convenient but just fucks it up. Yeah. <laughs> We also learned some more about the outer beings. Do you want to tell us about the outer beings, Scott? Oh, why not? 
sorry, can I just make a request here? That you do the first phrase in the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi? It's more vegetable than animal now. <laughs> okay, um, I shall not do that because I have no idea oh, how to do damn. it. They are more vegetable than animal, if these terms can be applied to the sort of matter composing them, and have a somewhat fungoid structure. Though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true colmophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having a wholly different vibration rate. That is why the beings cannot be photographed on the ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. Yeah, I mean, he loves this mixture of animal and vegetable, mm. fungi and, and so on. And also his knowledge of science and his interest in various branches of, of science kind of really come through in his writing. Oh, yeah. And I think they, because he's writing in the mode of an academic writing this record, it strongly kind of communicates that and strengthens that to me. Makes it more convincing. And thinking back to last year when we were discussing at the Mountains of Madness, he talked very much there about how the older things were a mixture of vegetable and animal life as well, that they were fundamentally vegetables that had animal-like characteristics. And we see, well, pretty much exactly the same thing here. And it all leads to vampire carrots in the end with <laughs> Campbell. <laughs> the creature's resemblance to animal life is a matter of parallel evolution, while they can speak as humans do with the aid of surgery, their natural mode of communication is telepathy. And while they come from outside what we understand as space-time, their nearest abode is Yagoth, an undiscovered planet in our very own solar system, lying somewhere beyond Neptune. Well, this is where our scientists just have to disagree with them, because obviously that thing isn't a planet out there. That's crazy talk. <laughs> Akeley wraps up the letter by inviting Wilmarth to come and see all these wonders firsthand. Oh, and of course, it would be so helpful if Wilmarth could bring all that evidence that he sent you. You know, the, uh, the disc and, the, and the, uh, the photographs and all that actual physical evidence. Make sure you bring that with you. Don't leave it behind. At this point, every klaxon, red light, siren, everything is whirring and shining and flashing. And I'd be thinking, hell no, I'm not going anywhere near here. But good old Wakely, <laughs> Wilmarth. <laughs> oh, what a fool. This letter leaves Wilmarth feeling conflicted. He is relieved, but he can scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzied bulletin. He can even see the flashing lights. He acknowledges them. He just doesn't understand what they mean. <laughs> and so, just get this straight, Matt. Wilmarth is being an idiot because he's not believing all the weird stuff that Akeley has been telling him or not believing that there's aliens and so on there? Or No, no, it's not that. It's that last line of, yeah, if you could bring all that evidence here, you okay. know. It's like, please follow me down this dark alley while I've got a gun in my hand. It, it's mm. remarkably obvious that that is setting up a trap of some kind, but he completely is oblivious to that. He's focused, if anything, more on the fact of the content of the rest of the message beforehand that he's not seeing this obvious and blatant setup for a trap. So you should be more credulous of the fact that 
there are shadowy alien presences manipulating all this? Oh, I can believe that. Okay, well, going back to Sound of My Voice then, why were the people there idiots for believing that she was a time traveller? I, I think that's a different episode and we're not talking about that here because I don't <laughs> want to spend a minute more of my life talking about that god-awful fucking film. Wilmarth sits up all night, thinking things over, his mind aching. Ultimately, his own zeal for the unknown wins out, longing to learn cosmic secrets and shake off the maddening and wearying limitations of time and space and natural law. There's another line I'd like to quote, because this is an interesting... I mean, it's partly just a narrative device on Lovecraft's part of showing the reader there's really bad things going on here. Look, it's clear that to us, the reader, that this typewritten letter isn't written by Akeley. It's clear that it's written by the Migo or their agents, which is only reinforced, as Matt says, by the fact that they've asked him to bring along all the physical evidence. And don't tell anybody you're coming and bring all the physical evidence with you. It's like that's so strongly sort of signaled to us, the reader. But in the text, Wilmarth thinks, I could not a moment or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign substitution. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have one test the truth of the letter in person, prove its genuineness? So he is really saying in that, that because he has picked up, Wilmarth has picked mm. up on this being very strange, out of character. He basically says either Akeley was of unstable mind earlier on or he's of unstable mind now it's one or the other he will not credit that this is a, a fake letter i'm not sure why but i think again it's i think it's it's mostly a narrative device to sort of have him buy into it and for us to to credit it i don't think it is just a narrative device as i've said before i think we as readers or watchers of a horror film know that we're watching a horror film or reading a horror story but the characters in there unless you're watching something like scream don't ordinary sane people do not look at a situation like this and think it's aliens they, they just don't but it's aliens yeah hmm. what this creates for us as readers in this case is this sense of dramatic irony that because we're aware of the genre tropes and we can see what is going on as the big picture because we know this is a piece of weird fiction, then we're leaping to a different set of conclusions than the characters are. If we were the people in that story and we were leaping to the same conclusions, we should be fucking institutionalised. Well, Arkham does have a mighty fine in Sailor Asylum <laughs> that they're all very proud of, so it'd be the best place for him to go. <laughs> But I think this is something that creates a, a weird tension sometimes in role-playing games, that mm. we are ostensibly trying to portray characters in stories like this, but we as consumers of horror media are bringing all our genre expectations and allowing those to taint how we interact with the story. And I think most of the really shitty mm. role-playing experiences I've had over the years have stemmed from that. And I know I've been as guilty of it as anyone else, and it's a really difficult thing to divorce yourself from. When I say shitty role-playing experiences, I mean you know, things that I've done to ruin the game as much as anyone else has. What, you mean of, of not buying into the horror or of buying into the horror? Of treating it like I know what genre my character is in, if that makes sense. 
that I know when I'm playing Call of Cthulhu that my investigator is a character in a Lovecraftian horror story. Therefore, I am reacting to certain tropes as someone who is a Mm. viewer or reader of that media might, as opposed to what a real person in that situation might do. So when you find evidence, you don't try and think of a mundane explanation for it. You try and identify which mythos monster left it. Yeah, and I think a lot of games actually rely on that meta approach because if you think about an average convention game, if you have four hours of the characters just denying the reality of the clues that they're picking up, it's going to stall, it's going to stumble, it's not going to be very interesting. But at the same time, there is something very unconvincing about I'm playing an ordinary library and this weird book has come through. I take a look at it and clearly this has revealed the truth of the cosmos to me, the great conspiracy behind it. My understanding of space and time is completely wrong. Therefore, I shall go and kill the next 10 people I see. That's a really strong reaction to reading at the shrug. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, we've you know we've talked about this before and it's like there is a... Also, the danger that, you know, you play your character, you know, I'm playing an accountant, there's uh, somebody's been murdered, well, I'll Mm. phone the police and then I'll go to work. Oh, yeah, but they're after you. Oh, well, okay, well, I'll get a plane ticket and leave the country. Absolutely. (laughs) We don't want players to do that either, to run away, which is what you would probably do in real life, right? You know, you're not going to go up to the creepy old house with a torch with dodgy batteries and a baseball bat. You know, you're not going to put your own personal life at that kind of risk, perhaps, but in the game, you do, because it's just a character and, you know, it's going to be fun Mm -hmm. in the game. That's very much the Teflon approach that I've heard before, which is yeah, the mm. minute the GM tries to put anything my way, I make every action to make it bounce off, because that's fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is a simple answer to this, and I think going to either extreme can wreck a game. But on the other hand, yeah, I don't know. It's something that I'm trying to do more, which is just think about how a real person might react in these situations as opposed to a call of cthulhu investigator Mm. but you're right paul that isn't always the fun thing to do there are no simple answers almost as soon as wilmarth tells akeley he is accepting the invitation he receives a telegram telling him don't forget record and letters and prints stop keep destination quiet stop expect great revelations stop do not panic (laughs) (laughs) and again this is not a trap (laughs) and that is where we stop until next time you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media presences We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. For a start, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. And thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers who have contacted us from the very remotest regions beyond the space-time continuum, or, well, from 
sitting in front of their computers, wherever it was. But yes, they have contacted us and we would like to thank them by name for backing us on Patreon. First off today, we have a big thanks going out to Gregory Moore. And many thanks to Grey Doman. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Like Er. And thanks to Michael David Mayer. And another singular name here that's just great. Thank you very much to Love Fist. <laughs> that is a great name. I have interacted with them on Twitter a few times, and that name always puts a smile on my face. What is not to mm. love about a loving fist? Well, friends, join us again next time when we delve into Chapter 6 of The Whisperer in Darkness. Until then, it's a good night from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Don't forget, bring all your copies of the podcast to the next listening.